And uh, I suppose the first thing I'm going to say about transformation is that you can't really transform unless you put yourself into risky spaces and unknown places. And I'm very struck by the fact that it is second nature now to me to be invited to somewhere I don't know, by some people I don't know, in a space I've never been to, to do something that I've never done, and kind of go, yeah, that sounds good. And I think, well, what gave me the confidence or arrogance to think that's okay? Well, for me, what gave me the confidence was being put through the ringer of the arts since I was a little girl, which in a sense forced you to have to completely renegotiate every time you encounter something artistic and it meets up with your expressiveness. You've got to completely reconsider who you might be. And of course, the minute that you stop doing that, then you, you've stopped being able to transform. And, and I say that because, in a sense, I feel that you know, we are all, with the planet that we live on, a set of Russian dolls. And that once one doll stops transforming, then the doll beneath or above is going to find it difficult to, to find a new way of flexing. And one of the key things about arts institutions, and I, I have spent my life building them, I mean literally sort of physically building many of them, or taking over old buildings that weren't particularly for the arts, made for the arts, and transforming them into something else, uh, is how do you make sure that arts organisations are not stolid gatekeepers that prevent the very action of transforming that they say the arts is there to do. Um, I think that everything about transformation also is, is guided by what values you live by. So whatever one's view on the riots are, then the act of throwing something to transform it into something which is more destroyed than it was it is an act of transformation and it will come from a place of determination to make a place for yourself and uh, and so i think that the the arts knowing how potent it is when you can make somebody realize that they have a voice and the voice can be heard or somebody else can speak on their behalf and they are representing you and you will be heard and you will be seen and you can be made visible. The arts have a phenomenal responsibility to make sure that that place of seeing and hearing is a space that everybody recognises themselves in. And when I was a little girl growing up in Liverpool, I happened to grow up when I was a small girl in a place called it was Chinatown in the West Indian community where the third inn were the Irish and obviously my name's Jude Kelly so that speaks for itself um, and this mix of many cultures I went to Bali in the West Indian Centre uh, was removed that mix was removed from me when my father started taking exams in the civil service and we moved up in the world well up in the world meant becoming whiter and up in the world became more homogenous and up in the world actually meant restricting the number of voices and stories that you were then going to be able to to hear and of course the less stories and voices you're hearing the less chance you have of being transformed because the transformations will get smaller because you're within uh, a framework really most of which you already know so the the idea of busting back through those walls 
not just on my own account, but on behalf of other people as well, seemed to me to be absolutely the imperative for what the arts has to do. Um, and the, the tendency of, of arts, of some practitioners and some audience members to, to desire for the arts to be a club in which you can look around the room and more or less reckon everybody is in your club. This is something to be absolutely avoided. It's something which, which sterilizes the arts and it sterilizes arts institutions and it's something which, in a way, all radical movements in the arts have been about saying another voice has to be heard, another group of people have got to be released into the space. Um, I'm going to show you some pictures of a, the, the, the South Bank Centre. When people say, well, what's the South Bank? I'll just tell you, it's 21 acres. It's the largest singly run centre for the arts in the world, we think. Um, and that's not like a PR claim, it's just a lot of, it's, but it does say there's a lot of space. It's the Royal Festival Hall, it's the Purcell Room, it's the Queen Elizabeth Hall, it's the Hayward Gallery, but essentially, and most potently, it's the 21 acres. And I say that because it was created in 1951, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary, it was created in 1951 for the Festival of Britain. And what they called it then was the space where you could have the propaganda of the imagination. 57% of the artists who made the work for the Festival of Britain were refugees. The Festival of Britain was a nine-month opportunity to think after the trauma of the war, why do you fight a war? For what peace are you working? And the idea of taking a neglected and, through many people's eyes, a sort of barren, area south of the river, the least fashionable side, the side where the lunatic asylum was, the side where the prison was, the side where the poor people were, and say, do you know what, on this land we'll build the future, that seemed to me to be a very inspirational place to be. And although my history has been forming arts organisations and created them from scratch, basically in relationship to how could you transform a community and a, a neighbourhood or, or a city in Leeds' case, I thought when I came across South Bank Centre, if you'll forgive me when I viewed it, you might think differently, but I thought it was a bit shabby. Um, five years ago when I was asked to go there, I thought, well, you could do a lot more if you, thought, if, if you loved this 21 acres as much as they did, those people, when they were intent on transforming it in the first place. And so part of what I think I've been trying to do is not transform from scratch, which is one way of, think, of thinking about things in the arts, um, but actually recover the space, recover the idealism of why they created the Festival of Britain to begin with, almost like an archaeological dig into philosophy. Recover that space so that you can regain that motivation, regain that, that uh, muscle that it had when it said we are going to make it the space for the propaganda of the imagination. Now, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure, that you know, we have fine work in the Hayward. We've just done the marvellous Tracy Emin exhibition. We've got Boulez and Barenboim uh, in a couple of weeks' time in the Royal Festival Hall. There's all sorts of, of, of the fine things that you can buy tickets for, and isn't that marvellous? But the, the, the point is that on those 21 acres where they created that original space, and I'm going to show you some slides now, you can see... Oh, you've, this, have these been playing anyway? Oh, right, good. Um, it, 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 it is all those other places that actually give you the opportunity to transform. Look, you know, people adopt their own space. They make their own decisions. They make their own art collectives. Just keep going, actually, if you wouldn't mind. Um, and I, I believe that everybody is an artist of some kind. 
Now, that doesn't mean to say that everybody would wish to be a vocational artist. Uh, but it does mean to say that everybody has the capacity, just because they're a human, of naturally thinking that they can transform those things that are impossible to speak of except through a poetic form. They can find a way of having access to that poetic form. And once upon a time, it was unthinkable that, people, that everybody would learn to read and write. It is now unthinkable that everybody will not learn to read and write. It is unthinkable to some people that everybody will be able to master or mistress artistic expression. I think in 100 years' time it will be unthinkable that people haven't been allowed to or able to or given space to. And until the point comes when everybody is in this continual process of transformation, not that the arts is the only method by which that can happen, you understand, but creativity is. Radical creativity is the space in which transformation happens. And for me, there's an indelible link between the idea of this Festival of Britain site, which if you leave it to be a sort of stuck space, and this is true of all our institutions, if they stand there and say, well, we're finished, as in we've completed ourselves, and now we're here to be admired, then actually what they do is they block out the light for everything else that's got to come in the future, which means new voices and, and, and new activities. So in, in, when the, the, the Royal Festival Hall was refurbished five years ago and the landscape started to change around it, it was vital that one wasn't thinking that the change of that landscape is so that the people who currently come can have a nicer cup of coffee or a better meal. It's really got to be to return to the idea of who's the invitation for, and the invitation is, of course, for everyone. And it's a, a wonderful thing to look out f to the river, and in a way, you know, you're looking north, to the part of London that is historically most spoken of and most celebrated. But, you know, actually, interestingly, when the architects created the Royal Festival Hall, they didn't tell you where the front door was. Thank God. There is no front door. All the, all the doors lead to the central ballroom. And architecturally, that says something very strong, which is that there isn't a hierarchy of viewing. So it is just as important to look from the river back into the neighbourhood of Lambeth, back into the neighbourhood of, of Southwark and the rest of the area. And of course, Peckham is one of those spaces. Um, I can tell you, if I had more than 15 minutes, of many, many examples of how on an individual level people's lives have been transformed because they have access to the arts. And that probably includes you in some way or other. But you have, may have come out to the arts because it's been naturally part of your family life, but so many people haven't. And when I have the opportunity to see, I wouldn't say just young people, I mean, you've seen elderly people there doing their chair dance, people who are immobile physically in many ways, but have, have become dancers again. When you see that people feel that they suddenly have a, a world revealed to them that they thought couldn't belong to them, or they didn't know how to access it, then they do suddenly think of themselves in a new light and then they change. It isn't fashionable anymore in a postmodernist world, which I'm hoping we've moved beyond soon. I, it isn't fashionable to sort of believe that, um, in a sense, one, that idealism will lead to transformation of values in society. But I, I cling to the fact that that philosophy and history comes back round again. I'm just going to close by talking about the Olympics as well, because it's always very interesting 
to go back and look at the reason why something was created in the begin, to begin with. One day you'll probably tell your children, I sat in that car park and it was covered in straw and, and, and it had been reimagined as a, as a community space, almost like a fireside environment. It was warm, it was, it was light and, and something happened in that space. Well, when people dream of a completely different way of doing things, they often have these sort of, they have to have almost impossibly ridiculous ideas. That's, that's sort of the nature of dreaming, isn't it? So once upon a time, Pierre de Coubertin, who was a, a, a French poet, baron and amateur boxer, was aware that there was a malaise in French youth. He, he saw that, as he said, a sickness in the youth of France because they no longer believe that adults care about changing the world for the better. And out of that came his idea to create the Olympic movement. And he took the symbolism of every nation walking through one door together as a symbolism of world peace. And he said young people need to be given the opportunity through sport, art and education to demonstrate to the rest of the world that actually they are the hope for the future. Now, the Olympic movement is an, a Byzantine and quite extraordinary labyrinth of hierarchies and formalities, and I won't go into all of that. But it doesn't mean to say, because it is a movement, that it can't move. It can still move, it can still transform, and like all world movements, it'll only do that if people somehow get stuck in and beat it up and change it. So the little bit that um, I think one has to do with the Olympics at the moment and the Paralympics is insist that the things that de Coubertin talked about originally, which were culture, education, sport, and the fourth thing that never got introduced into the Olympic movement officially, which was cultural history, these are things which perhaps in a hundred years' time the Olympics could stand for. So when we critique it in London, and we will in nine months' time, for me, one of the things that I'll be looking at is, is the Olympics in a place where it believes it's capable of being transformed? Does it want to transform? Is it still on the run? Is it still prepared to be adventurous and risky? If not, should we just forget it? But if it is able to keep transforming, then it's something very extraordinary that was invented by somebody who was a dreamer. So I suppose going back to my Russian doll analogy, and just to finish on this, um, Somewhere in this mix, you know, you introduced me as distinguished. Funny word, that, isn't it? You don't quite know what distinguished... I think I ought to have whiskers. Um, but the... Um, I have. But the, the, <laughs> the, the thing is that somewhere in the ecology of doing things, I'm quite high up in the cultural hierarchy. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that I keep transforming, otherwise I'm just a problem. But looking around the room at the age range, you know, you're mainly on the younger end of possibility. And so, you know, you've got to make sure that you are using all your energy for transformation and, and for other people, for other people. Because at the end of the day, just supposing there is only one life, you don't want it to have just all been used up by, for yourself. It, it's, that's not a good use of life. The good use of life is in a society and in a community to think, well, we've all changed together. So good luck with whatever you're transforming around and about, and I'll keep going on mine. Thank you.